Come on in, folks. Come on in, find a seat. Find a seat and we will get started again. We are on the home stretch now. And I want to thank you all again for coming and for participating in this conference. Um, we wouldn't take up this much of your time if we didn't think it was vitally important. Um, but we do see things in our world that are changing dramatically. And that's what this session is all about. Uh, we are seeing things in our society, in our country, that I think have energized the body of Christ from a political standpoint more than at any other time that I can remember in my life. Um, principally because of the things that we see that are so dramatic and so alarming. And many of these things are not only alarming in what we see, but they're actually legislated into the fabric of our country. Um, we've got uncontrolled illegal immigration. We've got rampant drug use and overdose deaths. I have two nephews that I lost to that epidemic. The sexualization of our children. You heard Vince and Brittany speaking about this. This is, this is shocking, and yet you see from some of the documents that Vince shared that this is institutionalized. This is taught. It's coached. It's pushed on our children. Um, we see school officials and public health officials encouraging and in some cases running interference for children to get life-altering, gender-affirming surgery. We have a crime wave going on in our nation uh, fostered by laws that are more sympathetic to criminals than they are to the victims of the crime. We've got government restrictions that are coming against our individual freedoms in the name of protecting the public from, from threats real and imagined. We see the fabric of our country being torn apart, and we can't help but think that the dismantling of our, of our nation is very deliberate. And naturally, as right-thinking people, we want to know what we should be doing to stop it. And this brings us to politics. Now, I'm going to admit, I've had an interest in politics forever. I don't have a seminary degree. I have a law degree. I have a degree in political science. This was where I thought where I thought my life was going was in that direction. The Lord had different plans, but I've never ceased to be interested in the body politic. I've never ceased to be interested in the ways in which human beings organize themselves for the greater good. And I've never seen in my lifetime our nation organized in a way that is not for the greater good. It's actually for the detriment of so many. And like it or not, because I know there are many Christians who have a, a, a bad taste in their mouth when it comes to politics. They don't want anything to do with it. You know, the famous statement, uh, you know, if you're at a party, don't speak about politics or religion. Unfortunately, those are my two favorite subjects. <laughs> so I'm not a real popular guy to have at a party. <laughs> Unless the party's at my house, and then, buddy, you'd better... No, no. But like it or not, politics is, is the way in which human beings are governed. It's the way in which we order society. It's the way in which we have a collective statement of values. What's important? What are priorities? And yet, of course, we have some things we have to grapple with. And that's what we want to grapple with in this session. There's some things we have to balance. The Bible tells us that we are citizens of heaven. We're just pilgrims passing through. We're on our way to a city which has foundations whose builder and maker is God. We have a great commission on our lives to make disciples of all nations. But nothing is said in that commission about applying ourselves to the reforming of human institutions of government. And yet, we are also charged with being salt and light in the world. A reference to being dispensers and preservers of the truth. And that task presupposes that we have a voice in the society in which we live and that we engage with it. And the political system of our country has a lot to do with the freedoms associated with fulfilling the commands that God, God has given to his church. The views that we take on in the political issues of our day should reflect who we are in Jesus Christ. Yet we're instructed in more than one place in, in the New Testament that we are to obey the governmental authorities that are placed over us. 
And so here's the questions we're going we're gonna to grapple with in this, in this particular session. What is the right balance to be struck between keeping a light touch on the world and yet at the same time sharing and standing for God's truth in the society in which we live? How involved in the, in the political process should the Christian be? Should we be involved at all? I mean, some, many people question that we should be involved at all. And if we should be involved, what form, what appearance should that involvement take if we are to honor and to glorify our Lord Jesus Christ? These are the questions we're going to look at here today. Let me start with a word of prayer because I have to say, maybe among all of these different sessions, this is the hardest one to understand and I don't presume to say that what I'm going to tell you is the spot-on right way, like thus saith the Lord. But this is the best discernment that I can bring to this topic based upon what I know about government and what I know about God's word. And so I'm going to share that with you. And that's why I say I engender, Vince will tell you at the end of every men's Bible study, any questions, comments, vehement disagreements, violent dis- discourse that you want to bring against it, I want to hear it. Okay? I love to discuss politics and religion at parties. Okay? <laughs> but this is, this is going to be difficult to get right for all of us. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you so much, Lord, for the freedoms we have. That we could live in a country governed by the people, Lord. And yet, Lord, we see these things receded rapidly. And we want to keep the light of the gospel shining bright. And we know that You cannot be stopped, Lord. The word of God cannot be foiled. But we do pray, God, that we would be your instruments in this society to continue to bring the truth and preserve the truth in our nation. We want to do it your way, Lord, not our way. So, Lord, speak through me to your people right now. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in order to understand this particular area better, I want to to just stop for a moment and bring us into touch with God's perspective on human government, okay? Um, It's vitally important that we understand the limitations of human government, and it's vitally important that we understand God's purpose in its midst. And so first and foremost, and sometimes I, I truly believe people forget this, is government cannot save us. Only God can save us. Government can't take the place of God ever. Government cannot legislate a change in the human heart. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ can do that. No matter which political party is in control, no matter which man or woman is in the seat of power, human government will always be tainted by the fallen state of humanity. The people in control are sinful fallen people who need redemption the same as you and me, and that redemption only comes from Jesus Christ. And so we need to understand that that advocating for the gospel, the gospel that Stephen uh, Abdo summarized for you, it's Jesus Christ and him crucified, him resurrected. Believe on him, you'll have everlasting life. Our advocating that simple message is the most powerful thing any of us can or ever will do to bring about change in our nation. Secondly, the politics, the policies, the laws of government can in no way change or challenge God's will. Never. God's plan is set. God's plan is sure. God's plan will come to pass. He is always in control. We should never forget that God is never out of control of what we as fallible human beings might do with our governance. Human government, by the way, is merely a means by which God affects his will on earth. It sounds astounding to think that some of the crazy cockamamie laws that are in place on our books right now and the things that our government tolerates and even encourages could possibly be something that God is working in the midst of, but we know that all things work together for the good for those that love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. All things even that there have been and will continue to be no shortage of unjust, incompetent, and downright evil rulers, God works in the midst of this chaos and evil to bring about his purpose. He's doing that in the very midst of the governments of our world today. Thirdly, 
It is God himself who delegated government to human beings. Believe it or not, but God gave human beings very deliberately, gave them the right to govern themselves. This is described in Genesis chapter 9 when, when Noah and his family come off of the ark, God passes along the first and foundational uh, delegation of authority regarding government and that is that anyone who unjustly takes the life of another human being shall have their life taken from them by human government fourthly and this is the one that perhaps might be most alarming and disturbing to you is that it is god who puts in place the people that rule over us Daniel chapter 4 verse 17 tells us that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men, gives it to whomever he will, and sets over it the lowest of men. Well, that explains some of it. <laughs> Daniel 2.21, and he changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings, yes, Lord, please, and raises up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding and he calls on us to pray for these, these leaders and these rulers. And to echo something that my brother Stephen said, we need to pray for our leaders, even when we're vehemently opposed to them. We need to pray for them. Now, fifthly, and this is the one, this is the kind of question that I typically ask because I just like to bend the things, but if human government is God's idea, and yet it is inhabited by sinful and sometimes downright evil people, how does that further God's purpose and plans? Now, I can't give you a definitive answer because I don't have the inside track on what all of God's purpose and plans are, but I can liken it to something else that we see in Scripture that is described to us, the giving of the law. God gave the law to his people Israel. And the first thing that they realized when they were given it was that they couldn't keep it. And you'd want to say, what's the purpose of the law? It didn't remediate them at all. Well, it had a purpose. It showed them that they need a savior. And I think at least one purpose that God uses human governance for in the lives of believers is to make us crave and pray for the true king, the true appearance of Jesus Christ. And then finally, throughout history, the church has flourished in spite of godless, evil, and corrupt governments. Sometimes we think, woe is us, everything's coming to an end. The last election cycle, I think a lot of Christian people who had any political um, awareness whatsoever really thought that uh, we took a major blow and, and woe is us and the end is near and that's it for the country and all that. And that all may be true, but understand this. This is what Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18. He says, on this rock, on this rock, Jesus, the rock that we saw in Daniel chapter 2, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. We can't lose. We don't fight for victory. We fight from victory. And that, that's that's. That's a stated scriptural truth. We know that in the midst of what God calls us to do, in the midst of this society, we should know that no government of man is going to stop or hinder God's plan. So with this understanding of God's perspective on government and the perspective we should have in understanding what we're up against in the process that governs us, let me share with you some of the things that God commands Christians concerning our relationship to government. Some of those have been previewed already, but I'm going to go into perhaps a little more depth. First of all, the Great Commission. You know, when you get a job, right, you, you, you sign up for a new job, you get a title and you get a job description. Well, the title Vince has already given you, bondservant of the Lord. The job description is Matthew 8, 28, 19, and 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. Now, if you look at that, it's very specific. It's really a single task. We don't have a job description that's, you know, as long as your arm. We have a singular task, and that is to make 
disciples. Disciples aren't just people who pray the prayer of salvation. Disciples are people who are followers of Jesus Christ. They are followers of Jesus Christ, both from the standpoint of he's our example and also from the standpoint that he is our leader. And what he commands on our lives is what we do. Notice what's conspicuous by its absence. There's nothing in there about political activism. When we see in the Gospels and in the book of Acts, there's no mention that Jesus or any of the apostles actively were involved in political activism. No speeches by them concerning the state of the government or the injustices or the racial makeup or anything like that. It was specifically focused on speaking into the hearts of the people that were in front of them. You might say that the, that the Great Commission is changing the world one heart at a time. And, and because we know this, we must, as we approach any endeavor in our lives, we must know that everything we do must promote that mission and nothing we do should detract from or distract us from that mission. So that's number one. The commission we've been given is to go out and make disciples but nothing yet was said concerning any kind of political involvement, but we're going to develop that further. Second thing we know from Scripture is that God has commanded us to obey the governmental authorities over us. And I invite you to turn with me to Romans chapter 13. And looking at the first seven verses of Romans chapter 13, here's the relevant passage. We read there, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. So you see, we've already established that point, haven't we? Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will, be, will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore, you must be subject not only because of wrath, but also for your conscience sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For they are God's ministers attending to continually doing this very thing. Render therefore to all their due. Taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Okay? So that is a direct command from, from the Lord through the Apostle Paul to obey the governmental authorities over us. Peter echoes the same instruction in 1 Peter chapter 2 between verses 13 and 17. Peter writes, Therefore submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to king as supreme or to governors, as to those who are sent by him for punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, as free and, and not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. There it is again. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. So... <laughs> Clearly, what we're being told is, and in Peter's rendering, he's actually taking into account not just the king, but the authorities under the king that are over us. These are things that um, we have to pay attention to. These are, these are authorities that, that are over us. In our federalistic style of government, we have, we have at least three, in many cases, four layers of government over us, don't we? We have a federal government, the U.S. government. We have a state government, the state of North Carolina. Uh, depending on where you live in the area. If you live in Chapel Hill, you've got a Chapel Hill government. I'm governed under the Hillsborough government. Um, so these are things that, that the Lord has made very clear that we are to obey the governmental authorities over us. And as we see in Scripture, if we look through the book of Acts, we look through the Gospels, we see the, the uh, well, our king, Jesus Christ, Following those instructions to the letter, we see Paul, we see Peter, we see John following those instructions to the letter. Even when Jesus was arrested unjustly, punished against the law, 
and brought before Pilate, and Pilate saying, if you're such a king, why in the world are you putting up with this? And Jesus answered in John 18, 36, he said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants would fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews, but now my, now my kingdom is not from here. And when you see Peter and John and Paul, they all endured prison beatings at the hands of government uh, without mounting or let's go get them boys, gathering together a posse, a militia or whatever to fight against the government as unjust as they were. Remember, Jesus, John, Peter, Paul, they lived in an empire ruled by an emperor. It was as autocratic as it gets. And yet they're telling us from their own and living out their own advice to submit to the governmental authorities. Now, let me bring the other side of the issue, and Stephen uh, alluded to this in his discussion. And that is that we live, as I said, in our country, we live under a federalistic system, right? We are a federation of 50 states that are uh, uh, indivisible 50 states, we hope. Um, and then under that, state government, local government, etc. But the hierarchy doesn't, doesn't begin with the federal government, does it? The hierarchy of authority that we live under begins with God. That is the ultimate authority. And so in any instance, when what the laws and commands of our governments, our human governments, are directing us to do that is in contravention to what the word of God tells us to do, in those cases, we must refuse to obey the laws of man. Um, if you went to the book of Acts, we won't go there now, but I'm going to summarize for you. Uh, the, the relevant passage is Acts chapter 3 through Acts chapter 5. And in that, in that passage in Acts, uh, Peter and John heal a man who's been lame since birth. It's spectacular. I mean, this man isn't somebody who got hurt and then Peter made him well. He had never walked. And Peter restored, or, or not even restored, granted him the ability to walk. And this became a huge thing. All of the people in the environs of the temple where this act of healing occurred, they're crowding around. They naturally want to know what in the world just happened, which, of course, opens a beautiful opportunity for Peter to witness the gospel, which he does. And this uh, occasions them to be arrested by the council or by the temple police. They're brought before the council. The council is is, one, is quizzing them on what they did, which of course opens another door to preach to <laughs> to the council. And of course, um, we read in Acts four eighteen through twenty. The council calls them, commanded them not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said unto them, Whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you, more than unto God you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. And so in Acts chapter 5, the preaching continues. Peter and John are arrested. They're imprisoned. And in the night, an angel of the Lord comes, opens the prison doors and instructs them, Boys, go on right back at it. And so they're back Preaching at the temple, the astounded council again brings them before the, the, the council. And here's their response to the council. This is in Acts 5, 29 through 32. Then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you slew and hanged on a tree. Him hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a savior for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses of these things, and so also the Holy Ghost, whom God hath given to them who obey his voice, obey him. And so the council warns them, beats them, and lets them go, and they rejoice that they were counted worthy to be beaten for the cause of Christ. Now, there's some clear lessons in this whole uh, aspect of these, these different... Uh, Extremes almost seems like on the one hand, submit to the governmental authorities over us. On the other hand, anytime those governmental authorities prescribe or prohibit something that God has commanded, we are to resist. Here's what we learn. We always obey the ordinances of government of men, except whenever those laws contravene what the word of God says. 
But then even then we are in compliance with the government in this respect. If you notice in Jesus's case and Peter and John's case, when they did refuse to obey the direction of the authorities of government, they willingly accepted the punishment prescribed by the law. They didn't try and escape. They didn't kill their jailers and run. When the, when the Lord opened the prison doors, they didn't go run for the hills. They went right back at the Great Commission. And so that is, that is the balance that struck between submit but submit to the entire hierarchy. By the entire hierarchy, if laws of men are consistent or not at least in contravention of the laws of God, obey. Because those individuals have been put there as agents of God's will. At the point at which those agents of God's will stray from God's will, we go straight to the source and we obey that, even if it means we're punished by the governments of men. Now here comes a wrinkle that I personally have never uh, heard any other Bible teacher take. Uh, not to say this is original to me. I'm sure somebody out there has brought this up. I just haven't heard it. But in looking at this and doing a little bit of study about the first century Roman Empire, here's, here's something we have to understand that is a crucial difference. And I really want you to take this to heart and think it through with me. We've already established the principle that uh, uh, it's God's will that we subject ourselves to the governmental authorities over us. Our examples, Jesus, Paul, John, Peter, who lived in first century Rome. Now, Rome started out pretty good. In, in, in like, as late as the, the first century BC, Rome was a republic. A republic is a governmental institution governed by people. But there was a movement afoot in the last, uh, you know, in, in the last bit of, of the BC times and into the first century AD when there was conflict within the, the powers that be in the empire and led by a man by the name of Augustus, they successfully converted the Roman government to an empire ruled by an emperor. And Augustus Caesar became the first Roman emperor of the realm. That is the government in which Jesus and his apostles lived. They lived in a government where the governmental authority over them was pretty much in the hands of one man. And, and the average, well, not the average, any citizen, they had no say in government whatsoever. They were not at all part of developing the laws of the country and, and in many cases even executing judgment. And that was where they lived. That's what they experienced. Now contrast that with where we are in the 21st century United States of America. Our governmental system is dramatically different from the one in which Jesus lived. Our system can be described as a federal democratic republic. Let me break that down for you. It's federal because it is an indivisible federation of 50 different governing units. We have 50 states that have a great deal of power and influence and authority, but it ultimately is underneath a federal government umbrella. Our system is democratic and that the people vote to select the representatives who will govern on their behalf. And it is a republic because the ultimate power of the government, the ultimate authority, you might say, is vested in the people and their elected representatives. We know this because if you look at the preamble of the Declaration of Independence, if you look at the preamble of the Constitution, it's stated right there. Listen to this, preamble of the Declaration of Independence. And I'm not going to say, you know the thing, I'm going to read the thing to you, okay? <laughs> we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, Unalienable means they cannot be abrogated. That among these are life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. That to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. Okay, you don't find that in first century Rome. Okay, listen to this, preamble of the Constitution. <clears throat> we the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, 
provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this constitution for the United States of America. I mean, I could, I could just remove the middle part and say, we the people of the United States do ordain and establish this constitution. That's who we are. That's who our government is. In our system, therefore, the ultimate governing authority, it's not an emperor, it's not a king, it's not a president, it's not a court. The ultimate governing authority to which we must submit is the will of the people as expressed in the Constitution of the United States. That document stands firmly in the way of totalitarian rule of any sort. This is why basic freedoms expressed in our Constitution are under such attack. Because we, the people, we are the ultimate supreme governing authority of the nation in which we live. Now, here's the implications for us Christians. In our context, submitting to the governmental authorities over us, in my view, I'm not saying thus saith the Lord, but as I reason this out based upon what I know about government, what I know about the word of God, the governmental authorities over us being us accommodates our involvement in the system as responsible citizens. And, and I'm going to continue to qualify that because I don't want to take this off the cliff and I don't want you to either. But this means that we should exercise our right to vote and it also means that we should advocate for issues that reflect the will and the way and the word of God in our lives. We should advocate for the individual freedoms that allow us to share the gospel and to make disciples because that's our commission. The power of government over the nation is invested in the, in the citizens of the country, which includes us. Is voting in the political system and taking a stand on issues such as abortion and education of our children working against our fulfillment of the Great Commission? Well, let's examine that. Will such involvement in the political system undermine our ability to magnify and to glorify God? The answer to that question is, it depends on how we go about it. When we approach our involvement in the political process with humility and sincerity... Our advocacy for the issues that are dear to God can be a fulfillment of Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. One of my favorite verses. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. I mean, what we are doing as Christians, exercising our, our right to vote and exercising our freedom to speak and to assemble and to worship our God has policy implications they must. And so we can fulfill our commission by being responsible, humble, and sincere uh, citizens of our nation. On the other hand, if we employ the political tactics of the world, such as personal attacks, destroying the reputation of opponents, spreading false information that we know is false, why then we're going to damage our testimony for Jesus Christ we're going to tarnish our witness. We're going to put up needless barriers to the process of making disciples. I think a, a good example of how the Christian community worked together to bring about a significant policy change was the overturning of Roe v. Wade. Now you say, well, that was adjudicated in a court. Yeah, it was adjudicated in a court, but the political system allowed us to get a president in place who had put justices on the court who were strict constructionists because, frankly, you can find plenty of liberal jurists who say that this whole right of privacy that was built around in Roe v. Wade was manufactured out of thin air. It didn't exist. Joe Biden himself, 20 years ago or 30 years ago, said that Roe v. Wade will ultimately be overturned because it's bad law. Now, the way in which the Christian community went about getting a change there, I think... You know, nothing's perfect, but I think it was laudable. I think there was an awful lot of, pri uh, of peaceful protest, an awful lot of advocating, even when it was deeply unpopular, an awful lot of supporting um, pregnancy support centers, as we do here in Chapel Hill with pregnancy support services, lobbying and speaking to our representatives, our elected representatives, 
re, uh, electing men and women who would speak for the unborn in the, in the halls of Congress. These are all things that happened over a course of 50 years. And ultimately, a change happened. Now, you might say, yeah, but the other side hates us even more. Well, that's going to happen anyway. But let them hate you for doing the truth rather than hate you for being just like them. And, and this, is, this is something we've got to be very, very careful about. Now, here's something that's come up. I alluded to this in the opening session. We have been given a moniker that is decidedly a pejorative one. We, we, we've been called, or some of our number have been called Christian nationalists. And, uh, you know, at first I puzzled on that term, Christian nationalists. Let's see. Uh, those two words mean I stand for Christ, I stand for my nation. Tell me what's bad. But whenever any uh, qualifier is put in front of nationalists, you can bet it's bad. White nationalists, racist nationalists, xenophobic nationalists. What they want to do is say that anything that, that comes from your ideology that you want to impose on the nation is bad. Um, and so and it's, it's much like what Brittany said in her session where she said, you know, they tell us that diversity is good, but they don't want diversity. They want sameness. And so if we... Um, you know, a nationalist, generically speaking, is somebody who seeks to pre preserve the unique character of the nation and uphold its traditions. That's what a nationalist is in any context, not just the United States of America. If you, another word we use for it is patriotic. I love my country. I want to protect the unique character of my nation. I want to promote its interests. That's being a nationalist. That's being a patriot. And these things are not considered bad until they are adopted by a particular group. Now, because we see in our nation's history and traditions a Judeo-Christian ethic that formed the foundation of our legal system, when we see a country that has been most largely a Christian nation for the vast majority of our history, and we seek to preserve that, when we seek to promote those values... For the good of our nation, why then we become Christian nationalists. And in the general view of the population, or of some of the population, this is considered very bad. Because we want to project on the nation the values we hold dear, which, by the way, not that long ago were the pervasive, universally accepted values of our country. And so... Uh, we have, to, we, have to, we have to think about this very carefully. Christian nationalist. We should never let our status as a nationalist trump our status as Christian. There is nothing within the, uh, the Bible as def defining or describing Christians that includes or promotes nationalism of any kind. We happen to promote the interests of our nation because of the way it was founded, because of the rights that it affords us, because of the wealth that is created that has allowed this country to put more people and money behind the spread of the gospel than any nation in the history of the world. And we want to preserve that, and that's a good thing. And so we need to advocate for those things, but we need to, we need to strike the proper balance. We need to respect the authorities over us. Who, are, who is that authority? It's us. It's the people. It's we the people. Is there a way in which we can, we can impose or we can participate in the marketplace of ideas that govern our nations? Yes, we have a political system that allows that to take place. Should we take part in it? My view, yes, we should. But we should never be more of a nationalist than we are a Christian. To the, like I said before, because we have the Great Commission, everything we do must be in support of that mission. Nothing we do should detract from or derail that mission. And so to the extent that you can justify being involved in the political process, it's because you are good disciples of Christ who want to continue to promote the things that are dear to God. And again, I use the abortion, the abortion uh, debate as a, a great example. I mean, Proverbs 14.34 says, Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. We can promote righteousness in our nation by simply standing for the things that are dear to God. Now, where I want to uh, 
conclude on this topic. Uh, and by the way, as a church that has uh, a tax status from the government, one of the, one of the things that is important to retain that status is that we should never campaign for any individual um, can, uh, candidate. We, we would never, I certainly would never uh, suppose that I could tell you who to vote for. I would never tell you that. Your vote is your business. But as your pastor, I can tell you, vote the word. And, and, I, and I don't care if it's a Democrat or Republican or a Cocker Spaniel, vote the word. Um, you know, so here are what I call some hills to die on. These are issues I believe any Christian person should, should advocate for, should fight for, okay? So here they are, and I call it the seven plus one. First, free speech. Soft totalitarianism, as Rod Dreyer described it, as we have outlined it in the world in which we live, depends on silencing points of view that are not considered in line with the party line. As I've mentioned to you already, the two things that are the greatest targets of a totalitarian uh, takeover effort are family and God. And if there are two things that we stand for as Christians, it's God and family. And so our ability to speak, to advocate, to share the gospel, to bring the gospel to other people, to help people out of the bondage of sin. It's vital to our mission. Can we do it if our country were to put down the hammer and, and ban free speech? We would do it. They did it in Syria. They're doing it in Iran. And by the way, I invite you to pick up one of those magazines on your way out the door. They're from our, our partner Elam in Iran, and that'll give you an idea of what the Lord is doing in Iran. It's outlawed. You can't speak about the Lord there. You can't speak about the Lord in a lot of places. I'm going to go to India for 12 days a week from tomorrow. I'm going to go into a country that's on, you know, Voice of the Martyrs list of top 10 most oppressive places to go as a Christian or to be a Christian in. The gospel is, is not thwarted there. It's, it's probably growing faster in the very countries I just named than it is here. But that doesn't mean that we should say, great, ban our free speech and we'll just press ahead. No, we have it. It's, it's part of the fabric of our country. We should, we should advocate for that because the authority over us is us. Freedom of religion. How many places can we think of in the world today that not only have the freedom of religion built into their founding documents, but they actually recognize it? Again, I'll go back to India. India has in their constitution freedom of religion. But let me tell you, uh, Prime Minister Modi is an ardent Hindu nationalist. His vision for their country is to be a homogenous Hindu nation. And so the actual application of those freedoms in their nation is considerably less than what the Constitution would express. We need to fight for, to advocate for freedom of religion, freedom of assembly. We saw a challenge to that, didn't we, during COVID? During COVID-19, the edict went out that all churches must close, that we cannot meet. Meanwhile, liquor stores stayed open. Marijuana dispensaries stayed open. Abortion clinics stayed open. Walmart. Walmart. <laughs> Thank God for Walmart. <laughs> Especially if you're old enough to go during the senior hours when no one's there. Oh, that was great. But... We know that the book of Hebrews tells us that we should not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. Why? Yes, you can go on the internet and you can find a thousand Bible studies an hour if you really want to. And we need to be fed the word of God. But that's not all that God had for the church. The greatest benefit in my Christian life is being here with you. You have no idea how much encouragement I draw from just seeing your faces and, and sharing the Lord with you and you sharing the Lord with me. Um, this is part of what it means to be a body. Your arm just wouldn't do so great if it were home by itself on the internet. <laughs> Probably be looking for a doctor real quick. Um, the right, number five, the right, or number four rather, the right of life, the right to life. The last 50 years, a battleground for the right for the unborn to live. But let me tell you what's coming. 
I believe this with all my heart. In the coming years, do not be surprised if the battleground for the right to life moves from the unborn to the elderly, the infirm, and the handicapped. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, again on Jan Markell's program, she had a father on who, has, who had a Down syndrome daughter, 19-year-old Down syndrome daughter. This struck very close to my heart because I have a Down syndrome granddaughter. And she went into the hospital with COVID. And um, she was doing okay. I mean, she had a severe case, but she was getting better. She was doing okay. And they had a, a regime, they had a protocol for, for how to treat her. And then for some reason, they, they changed that. And all of a sudden, they were giving her medications in a quantity that even the, the indications on the medication said, you never do that because you'll, you'll stop respiration. And the parents and the older sister were, were screaming at him, like, stop, you, you can't do this. And, and ultimately, that, that young woman died. And this father is so convinced that his daughter was singled out to be taken out because of her, her handicap, handicap that he has started an organization, a movement. And, and, and he's, as he's done that, many other people have come forward and have said that they had a similar experience. And, and when we see, for example, what happened in New York during COVID, how many elderly people were sent back to nursing homes with COVID and they would have whole floors of people die from the disease. If we're supposed to follow the science and listen to the public health officials, don't tell me they didn't know that. Any one of us would say, this is a communicable disease. The elderly have the most compromised immune systems by definition. You're sending them back there? This didn't take a genius to figure out. So, I mean, they could either plead guilty to being monumentally stupid or evil. And I'm not going to say which. I'm simply going to say, you will see this trend in our lifetimes. Some of us may be the target of that. Fifth, hill to die on. And you heard it in spades in the last session. Right to educate our children as we see fit. Biden made a speech at the 2022 National and State Teacher of the Year event where he said this. They are all our children. They're not someone else's children. They're like yours. He's speaking to the teachers. They're like yours when they are in your classroom. The famous debate uh, for the Virginia gubernatorial candidate, uh, uh, governor race between Glenn Youngkin and Terry McAuffey. During this debate, McAuffey made this statement. He said, I'm not going to let parents come into schools and take books out of the libraries and make decisions. I don't think parents should be telling schools what they should teach. There is a God because McAuffey was soundly defeated, as he should have been. But understand that the day is likely to come when you will not have the option to teach your children at home. This has already happened in some countries, Germany, notably among them, where they say, look, we have a standard for education. We can't go and police everyone's homeschooling efforts, so we, we, we're just eliminating that. And there is a movement afoot within the education uh, administration of our nation to do just that. That's why they hated Betsy DeVos, because she was of the view, she was the last secretary of education, and her view was, Parents should decide how they're going to educate their children. Not only that, but if the government's going to pay for education, then they should direct some of those funds towards the educational choice of the parents. And so I say, we need to fight for the right to educate our children as we see fit. Sixthly, the order of the sexes. You've heard a lot about that today. And you might, you might think, especially if this isn't, one, this isn't your church, you might be thinking, these people are just bigoted. These people are just down on the gay lifestyle and this and that. And, and, and let me just tell you this. We are not down on people. We love people. We don't see somebody in a homosexual lifestyle as a sinner of a different class than the person who lies, is a serial fornicator, is a, is a, a person that has other issues, pride issues or whatever. It all separates us from God. But there aren't many classes of sinner that have come in here demanding that the church affirm a lifestyle that God clearly speaks against. 
and the things that are happening with the order of sexes. First, it was the gay lifestyle. And by the way, Barney Frank, he was an individual, he was a, a, a congressman from Massachusetts, and he was the first openly gay congressman that we had, at least that came out um, before people in our country's history. And back in his time, which was like 30 years ago or so, he was, he, he was watching the, the gay um, political movement pushing all, all buttons of, of their agenda, including the transgender button. And his advice to them is to say, look, don't, don't push the transgender thing now. That, that's a hill too far. We, we will lose if that's part of our platform. Let's just stay with gay and lesbian rights. Push that. We'll get to that later. We'll get to that other stuff later. Here we are. Now, our president is saying for, to transgender youth, your president's got your back. What does that mean? Now, the reason why I consider this an important issue, a couple reasons. One is, first of all, nothing screams rejection of God's order than to confuse gender and sexuality and, and, and to normalize sexual perversion. This is not being bigoted against any group. This is a human thing. As, as I think Vince or somebody said, this is not new. People have been uh, doing those kinds of things for, for since the garden, probably. Certainly since Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, but what's happening now is new and different because it is now built into the fabric of our legal system. And that issue will bleed over into other issues like speech, like religion, it will not be long before a, somebody like me who just shared from Romans chapter 1 today will be arrested in jail just like that pastor in Canada. I would not be surprised if a year or two from now this conference would be illegal. The very things we covered today would be banned and if we tried to do that some of us, probably me especially, would be ending up in jail. That's coming. Seventh, law and order. I watched a special last night on the city of Chicago. And this, this uh, documentary on the city of Chicago, you won't see it on CNN, you won't see it on MSNBC, you won't see it on ABC, NBC, CBS, you won't see it. It's, it's on Fox Nation, okay? And it, and again, it's not somebody opining, it's not somebody on a rant, it is the video, it is the quotations, it is the people who perpetrate this stuff speaking what they're all about on the video. So it's not, it's not editorialized, it's not cleverly edited, it's just, in some cases, raw video. This is happening because much like confusing gender and sexuality breaks down the order that God has put in place. I just read you a whole bunch of scriptures, didn't I, about how God puts in place the governments over us as his agents to keep order in the society. Let me read you another one, Romans 13, 3. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what's good and you will have praise from the same. 1 Peter 2, 13 and 14. Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether the king is supreme, to governors, as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers. You see, even God, not even God, especially God, knows that certain levels and types of evil can only be restrained by force. This is something God has delegated to us keep control, beat down evil, cut it off at the, at the root, incarcerate the dangerous. This idea of defunding the police in, in the name of a higher order, it's madness. It is not scriptural. The Lord is a God of order. And, and Steve, I think Steve touched upon it when he said that, look, to pursue love without truth, it's not love. To say that, well, you know, criminals that we would call criminals, others call incarcerated individuals, they're not even incarcerated for very long. 
There was anecdote after anecdote on that, on that documentary yesterday about individuals, this poor mother whose son was just kicked to death on the sidewalk by five individuals. Four of them got prison sentences, but when the new state attorney, who's now in office now, came along and this guy's case came up, she let the kid out. He committed another felony. She let him out. He committed another felony. She let him out. He committed another murder. Now they're looking for him. This is when, when, when these elected officials depart from and fail to honor the God who has actually allowed them to be in place. We have every authority. We have every reason to want to advocate against that and not tolerate that in our society. It is a lie to say that that all, because there are bad actors in police forces, which there most definitely are, and those individuals should suffer for their crimes, but not every police officer should suffer for those guys' crimes. And then we pull back funding of the police and we have no law and order in our cities. The cities that used to be the most beautiful in the country, places like San Francisco, places like Portland, places like Seattle, businesses are moving out of there. They can't do business. The government's first job is to protect the society, and they aren't doing it, and they're legislating ways to avoid doing it. We can't let that happen. Now, the plus one, support for the nation of Israel. Genesis 12, 3, I will bless those that bless you and curse those who curse you, says God to Abraham. And history has shown that God has delivered on that promise on both ends of the spectrum. Our nation has been monumentally blessed. And even that there were reluctant leaders at the time it happened, we stood with Israel when they became a nation. And we benefited greatly by doing that. In recent times, um, we've had administrations that have been decidedly hostile to Israel. And I think we're reaping some of the lack of blessing or cursing from those efforts. We have a voice in our government. Our government spends billions upon billions of dollars throwing it at every kind of nation in the world, some of them desperately corrupt. We are spending more money, far more money, to protect the borders of Ukraine than we've spent on our country in the last two, three, four years. And this is a tragedy. So if we're going to be throwing money at other countries, we need to stand with Israel. Because Israel is, is God's chosen nation, and it will be the capital of our kingdom one day. So um, just to summarize on the political front, I get it. A lot of Christians are very turned off by politics. It's nasty. It's mud wrestling. It's, it's, it's mud wrestling with, with dung mixed into the mud. It's, it's, but it is the way in which God has given us to order our society. We need to submit to the governmental authorities over us. But we live in a very unique time and place where the government Authority rests with the people of which we are some. And we have, we have a responsibility to exercise our right as citizens to vote. We have, we have a voice in the government. We should never put our national interests ahead of our, our, our God and our ultimate country, which is heaven. But if we want to be effective advocates for dispensing the truth and preserving the truth, we need to have a voice in the way in which our nation is run, in the way in which our nation is conducted. Now, to conclude the conference in total, I want, you, I want you to leave here confident. I want you to leave here with your heads up. I want you to believe, because it's true, that you are part of something special. You are part of the most amazing organization that is actually an organism that ever has existed on the face of the earth. You have peace with God, and because you have peace with God, you have the peace of God. And so let me remind you of what you already know as a means to close. Isaiah 41.10, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Isaiah 46.10, Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. Daniel 9, 24. 
where Daniel is given the entirety, the, the panorama of time, save for a hiatus in the middle, which is the very time in which we live, the church age. The Lord tells him this. 70 weeks, that's 490 years, are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgressions, to make an end to sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. These things will come to pass. These things are guaranteed sure. And the and, and, and the most holy will be anointed. And then finally, Revelation 19.20. Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet, who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone. The ultimate individual that Satan will raise up as the last global totalitarian leader has that end in his future. And this is why I say we don't fight for victory. We fight from victory. We have the victory. We have a time, and I read this from Thessalonians, where until he that lets or he that restrains is taken out of the way, what God has planned for his church on this earth continues. You and I continue. We double down on sharing the gospel, on preserving the truth, on refusing to live by lies, refusing to accept what we don't believe. We stand in the gap for truth because people are retreating from it at an astounding pace. And first of all, we should make sure we and our families are not among them. And this is why the education thing is so important. And that secondly, we should be actively bringing the truth in front of people and understand it's going to be more difficult as the days go on. Nevertheless, we persevere. 